Hi, welcome to Faith of Our Fathers. I'm Jonathan Brack. I'm Charles Williams. And this is the second episode of Faith of Our Fathers, so thanks for listening in. And this week we're going to talk about the approach one should take to church history. Not just why church history is important, but this week, how we study it and how we should study it. Um, In order to do that, we should probably lay out a context, sort of like a roadmap of where we are and what the process is to, to do good church history. One way of getting at that is talking about how we shouldn't do church history. Charles, give us a few examples of how one should not do church history. Yeah, I, I think probably the most common conception uh, people have when studying history is is the kind of history they got in high school. Um, at least, oh, my, yeah. at least my experience is you end up getting stuck with the softball coach, you know, and it's three <laughs> o'clock in the afternoon, yeah, and he just gives you a laundry list of three hundred dates. Say, okay, you learn these dates for the final exam. Your final exam is a multiple choice test. One, the class is super boring, you know, uh, and. Yeah, I mean, it just it's you're not there's no relevance to yeah. knowing why this is important. You're like, okay, I've learned a bunch of facts and figures. I've kind of gotten a fire hose of all these dates. I don't know why they're important. I just kind of got to string them together on this timeline or some type of coloring chart that I've been given. Uh, and there's just no no real usefulness to it. There's no real relevance. So the question that's so fascinating because that's that is how a lot of high schools are. It's like the the coach teaches history. Yeah. And it's sort of a stepchild of all the subjects. <laughs> it is, I remember uh, when I was looking for a job when I when I graduated from college. Uh, you know, I wanted to teach high school history. That was my goal. And uh, I interviewed with like four or five different schools, and in every case, they said, "Oh, you want to teach history? What sport do you want to coach?" <laughs> <laughs> that's hilarious. And I and so I said, "Well, I, I don't really care for sports." Uh, which I mean, that's that's a shibboleth in the South, uh, and so they said, "Oh, as soon as I would say, they go, oh, thank you very much. We'll be in touch.'" Which was a flat out lie. They they were never in touch ever. Don't again. you know the history of <laughs> coaches in public schools? Right, right. That's funny. Um, uh, you know what's funny about that is that the school I went to, uh, Tuscaloosa High School, Amarillo, Texas, the soccer coach was also church history. His name was Coach Babcock. The funny thing was that it was the reversal. He was not a very good soccer coach, and he'd admit that. He, you know, he never played the game growing up, but he was a very good church, uh, not church, but a very good historian. Okay. Uh, he's had some of the, the most difficult classes. It was, it was funny. So there, there are your options. You can either be really good at sports <laughs> and terrible at history, or you know, good at history and terrible at sports. I, I guess I fall in the latter camp. Or probably somewhere in neither camp because I'm probably terrible at both. But <laughs> right, right. Um, anyways, yeah, we kind of want to avoid the, the the high school sports coach approach to studying history. We just give a bunch of dates that are irrelevant to life and that are ultimately boring. Um, because if, if you want to think of dates or facts or events as trees in a forest, mm-hmm. you know. When you, with that that particular approach, you end up getting lost in the woods. You're learning about all these events and these facts, but you're not seeing how they relate to one another. Right. And history fundamentally is about interpretation, and that's why we talked about last week the fact that you know, the fact that we worship the triune God who has created space and time and has acted in history has given meaning to history. Therefore, we need to think about the concept of what does it mean? How do we go about interpreting history? Um, and how do we think about its relevance, particularly in the field of, of church history? And so the first thing to think about in looking at the early churches, well, how do you, 
what do we mean by the early church? How do you go about periodizing history? So there's the problem of dates. I'm not, not like dating chicks, but like the, the problem of like <laughs> problem historic, of courtship. Yeah, the, the pro, yeah, I've kissed courting goodbye. You know, um, <laughs> no, the, the uh, it's the problem of periodization. So right. you know, think about this. You know, let, let's deal with something more relevant. Let's say we're we're wanting to approach studying uh, the 20th century. You okay. know, what major events are going on in the 20th century? We got World War One, right? World War Two, the Cold War, decolonization. So civil rights. Yeah. So from the uh, big picture, looking at the major events that are taking place in the 20th, 20th century, we can kind of extrapolate certain themes, that of global conflict and the notion of individual rights. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you look at the 18th and 19th centuries, uh, you could do the same thing. You look at specific events, scientific revolution, American revolution, French revolution, Haitian revolution, industrial revolution. You revolution. Know, revolution is going to be a theme in terms of uh, you know social, political, ideological upheaval. We see the emergence you know at the end of the French Revolution, for example, and uh, the Napoleonic conquests in 1815 with the Congress of Vienna. We see action against the French Revolution with the rise of conservatism, and then a reaction against that with the rise of liberalism, socialism, Marxism. Then we see Darwinism, feminism. I mean, kind of the age of ism. So what there is mm-hmm. in the 18th and 19th centuries, we see. Uh, just a big political, ideological upheaval that make that marks a radical contrast between the 18th and 19th centuries and the centuries prior to it. Right. If we want to kind of apply that to the study of the early church, one of the things that we'd want to do is look at key events and dates and see if we can extrapolate certain particular themes. Hmm. Now, the question is, you know, let's say for that the, the casual listener. You don't know anything about what's going on in the first century or the second or third, fourth, fifth, or sixth century. So where do you start? That's the big yeah. question is where do we begin? Right. And so kind of what we want to do this week is provide that roadmap that you talked about. Right. What what big events, what key events or figures occur in the first six centuries that could kind of act as, let's say, mile markers or okay. guideposts? You know, and, and I think personally for me, instead, you know, when I taught high school, the th- the idea for me was not to give Three thousand dates for everybody to memorize. The idea is to give a handful of dates and to use them kind of as guideposts. Okay, you know, mile markers along the way that kind of mark, let's say, turning points. Now, as you kind of get more in depth, you learn more dates because history is infinitely complex. Right. But again, this is kind of a, a layman's introduction. So, I, for me personally, I think that if we know, let's say, six key events in the early church and use these as mile markers, okay. as something to hang your hat on, I think it would give you a good introductory context. What's going on in the first six centuries? Right, okay. Um, so, I mean, that, that's probably what we're going to do. Well, that's not probably. That is what we're going to do. But it's, it's, I think, a valid approach. Let's say if you wanted to plan a road trip from Philadelphia to Atlanta, instead of learning every turn along the way, you want to know what the major mile markers are. Right. You know, what are we going to stop at and look at between here and Atlanta? Yeah, uh, that's kind of what we're doing here in in this first episode. We want to give a bird's eye view of what we're going to do for the next thirty episodes. We're definitely not going to stop in Jersey, that's for sure. Yeah, well, we there's <laughs> Jersey is in the other direction. Can anything good come from Jersey? <laughs> I believe that is a question from the Bible. Well, ask Jim Cassidy. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Um, so, okay, so give us some uh, give us a roadmap, some dates, some mile markers. Okay, let's say that. We're, we're taking a road trip from here to Atlanta. The big stop between here and there, there's one key event. Okay. All right. Big key event in the early church is the year 325. Mm. That 
is, in my opinion, the watershed moment in early church history. I mean, apart from the resurrection, we're talking post-apostolic age. Right. Um, 325, the Council of Nicaea. Okay. So if there's one date to remember, one, one thing to hang your hat on in the early church between, say, the beginning, the founding of the church, Pentecost, roughly year 30, uh, until, let's say, the year 500, that the key event is the year 325. At Nicaea. At Nicaea. It, what happens there is the Roman Emperor Constantine calls an ecumenical council for all these church bishops to deal with the issue of Arianism, hmm. which didn't, had denied the deity of the Son, denied the deity of Christ. It's at the Council of Nicaea that we see, um, first off, a repudiation of Arianism, okay. almost unanimous, uh, and the affirmation of a Trinitarian formula that we see – uh, displayed in what's known today as the Nicene Creed. Okay, well, real simply, what's Arianism? Uh, Arianism is a 4th century heresy uh, propagated by uh, an Alexandrian uh, deacon by the name of uh, uh, Arius. And he, what he did is he denied that uh, Jesus was God. Very simply put, we'll get into greater detail when we talk about Arianism in a specific week, but more or less he denies the deity of the Son. He says that Jesus is the most perfect created being, but a created being nonetheless. There was a time when he was not? Correct, yeah. Okay. He would say, that, that was something he said, apparently he wrote really, really terrible hymns, um, not just doctrinally, but uh, apparently they were just aesthetically unpleasing. <laughs> just bad chord structure. Right, right, yeah. I mean, it was like, you know, like a, well, no, I'm not going to use modern examples. freeform jazz. <laughs> <laughs> um, right, right. And, uh, Okay, so Arianism. Arianism. So anyways, 325, uh, there, there's a public condemnation of it uh, and the establishment or, or, or the writing of what's known as the Nicene Creed, something that we see re- recited in churches today. And so it has lasting value. So you, you sit there and you know, if you go to some type of um, confessional church, you will probably recite the Apostles or Nicene Creed once, at least once a month, probably once a week. Um, the fact that it has lasting value, I mean, all every major Christian denomination, whether you're Roman Catholic, Eastern Orthodox, you know, Reformed, Lutheran, Episcopalian, you adhere mm. to this creed. This is considered yeah. basically the litmus test for orthodoxy hmm. in the early church, um, you know, the rule of faith. Wow. Uh, okay. And so that's the big thing to think about. So our question is, how do we get from, let's say, Pentecost to Nicaea? Mm-hmm. And then from Nicaea, how do we get from Nicaea to roughly the year 500. Yeah. Okay, so that that's our midpoint. So now we want to kind of fill in the gaps with the other the other major our major, major rest point, sort of the center right. is this council right. that repudiates Arianism. Right. How do we how do we yeah, how are we going to make our how are we going to let's say it's a two-day trip to Atlanta. Nicaea is the, the midway point. Now, geographically, it just doesn't make sense. Nicaea is in, <laughs> is in Turkey. It right. is not in uh, the United States by any stretch, but hopefully you get the, the metaphor uh, okay, uh, or the analogy. Anyways, so that's, that's kind of our, our major guidepost. Now, like I said, there are, there are a total of six uh, major dates that we want to think about. Okay. The first major date, the, you know, the first stopping point along the way would be year, the year 70 A.D., Year seven zero. Okay, that's uh the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. Is now, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but this is a disputed date, right? Or uh, not to my knowledge, th- no. Okay, no, no, it's uh, no year seventy is pretty pretty it's, solid. It's disputed about when the Book of Revelation was written around this date. 
Uh, yeah, my understanding. I, 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 I'm not too uh, familiar with with those debates. You're not familiar with the book Revelation? Oh, yeah. just no, what is this? I, I don't understand. I, I have yet to take Beale's course. Okay. Um, <laughs> uh, no, anyways, the, the year 70 is it's more of a symbolic breaking point. Right. Um, but it, it's, a, it's a breaking point nonetheless between uh, Jewish and Christian relations. You know, we're going to talk about the year 70 next week in greater detail. Okay. But long story short, uh, when uh, the Jews take up arms against the Romans in the year 66, Christians in Jerusalem refuse to do so. For example, John will go to Ephesus. So mm-hmm. same with Philip. Uh, this is seen as a betrayal against fellow Jews. Up till, up till this point in time, Christianity was seen under the broad umbra- umbrella, umbrella of, of Judaism. Judaism. Yeah. It's here that we start seeing that even the Roman Empire will start making a distinction between Christianity and Judaism. So that's an important mile marker mm-hmm. because it's going to have certain political ramifications. Whereas um, Judaism prior to this had enjoyed uh, certain exemptions. They didn't have to um, worship any of the Roman deities. They, continue, they could continue worshiping Yahweh. Uh, Christianity, since they were seen as part of this umbrella tent, now that they're seen as being something distinct, they don't get to observe, um, enjoy these same ex- exemptions. So now, because they refuse to worship the emperor, they're going to ca- start coming under persecution. Okay. So we're going to see the rise of per- an intensification of persecution. It's still going to be sporadic, mm. um, but there will be an increased intensive pers- uh, uh, persecution of Christians uh, that will increase from roughly the year 70 you know, until the legalization of Christianity at our next road point, the year 313. Okay. Um, 313. So well, 70. Yeah, 70. 313. Yeah, to 313 is going to be, we're, we're going to be looking at Christian persecution. That's one of the major events, the major themes that develop. And so what we're going to see is Christian uh, Christians begin defending themselves, uh, not so much in terms of their lives. They're not defending their livelihood. I mean, they end up willingly go, going to... Uh, uh, to, to death for their faith, but what we do see them defending is their faith, not their mm-hmm. lives, but their faith. But their, yeah, and their so we see, and right? So we will, we'll start to see the rise of uh, apologetics. Yeah, uh, second century Justin Martyr, Irenaeus of Lyon, uh, Tertullian. Um, they will. So we have seventy three thirteen. Mm-hmm. Now, why that date in spe- specifically? Three thirteen, Christianity gets legalized by Constantine. At the, okay, it's the Edict of Milan. Mm. Um, he goes to war against some of the other uh, – they're known as the Roman Tetrarchs, uh, it's, uh, other Roman emperors. It's complicated. We'll talk about that in, in the coming weeks. Yeah. Uh, but he ends up going to war against these other guys, defeats them. Uh, the last them – well, not the last per se, but one of them at the Battle of Milvian Bridge acquires a large possession of the Roman Empire, mm. legalizes Christianity. His mother was a, a Christian. Yeah. So he himself ends up um, – doesn't make it the official religion. That doesn't happen until the year 380, 381 okay. under Theodosius. But it does become legalized for the first time, and that's going to have social ramifications. It's yeah. going to change the nature of the relationship between the church and the state, especially mm. since he wants to endorse Christianity. Christianity by the 4th century becomes so large that uh, in a really savvy political move, Constantine gets behind the church. And oh. says, "Oh, okay. Well, whatever problems you're facing, we need to we need to kind of resolve because the unity of the church is going to mean the unity of the empire in many ways." Hmm. And so, third point, you know, the, the third mile marker, and it's it's actually that that major mile marker that we've been talking about, the Council of Nicaea, that unifies that unifies it. Con- yeah, Constantine says, "Hey, we need to have a unified church because I want a unified empire." 
Right. Uh, so he presides over that. So there's going to be kind of political maneuverings going on behind the scenes. It doesn't make the doctrine any less true. Mm. Um, we'll deal with that. But it does mean that that uh, Constantine is uh, heavily involved. He he is there at the Council of Nicaea. He's wow. the one who calls it to order. Yeah. Uh, and so we're going to see some type of progression going from the persecuted class to the guys in power. Mm. That's 325. Now, so we've got three dates, the year 70, the year 313, 313. then the year 325. Well, we're going to see the, the next mile marker is 381, the so-called Council of Constantinople. Okay. So what's going on from 325 to 381? Well, what you're going to find out is after Constantine's death, one of his sons who comes to power ends up being an Arian having pro-Aryan sympathies. Wow. Mm. So almost immediately, every you know the victory won at the Council of Nicaea almost goes right out the window. Mm. Uh, Nicene bishops end up getting exiled, some end up getting uh, executed. Um, the most famous uh, pro-Nicene bishop, that uh, Athanasius, the Bishop of Alexandria, ends up getting exiled five times during this period. <laughs> it's, wow. it's actually really, it's, it's kind of humorous how, how bad his luck is. Um, or maybe how good it is because he ends up not getting killed in, in, in any of those situations. Yeah. But what we do see between 325 and 381 is a, a uh, clarification hmm. of terminology brought about at the Council of Nicaea. Okay. Uh, it kind of culminates you know, in the work of the Cappadocian fathers, Gregory of Nyssa, Gregory of Nazianzus, and Basil the Great. We'll talk about those, those individuals. But in 381... The Roman Emperor Theodosius comes to power, and he is a staunch Nicene proponent. Uh, and he calls for an ecumenical council. Council of Constantinople is, is is issued, and there's a reaffirmation of the creed from Nicaea, but there's also further clarification of terminology. And the, the great thing, you know, if, if the deity of the Son is affirmed at the Council of Nicaea, at the Council of Constantinople is the deity of the Spirit that is affirmed. Mm. Um, and, and that's done largely by the work of the Cappadocian fathers. Mm. Um, and so we see just kind of a clarification and intensification of what happened at Nicaea. But that 60-year time period is, is very, very important. So we'll talk about that. Okay, great. Um, next roadmap is how do we get from the year 381 to, let's say, the year 431. What's 431? 431 is another ecumenical council. Uh, it's the Council of Ephesus. Okay. Um, you know, if we've affirmed the deity of the Son, the fact that Jesus is God— What's his relationship to his humanity? So it's at um, 431, the Council of Ephesus, we will see an affirmation that Jesus is both fully God and, and fully, fully man, man. Yeah, which will be affirmed again in the year 451, but we'll get there. What we really see, however, from 381 to 431 uh, is the, uh, the emergence and clarification of other disputes. Hmm. Uh, one thing I just kind of want to note is you're, you're thinking, okay, well, all this talk about church history, you're really just talking about doctrine. That's an important point to to, to bring out, because if, if that's what you're thinking, you're along the right track. You cannot have a discussion of the early church apart from a discussion of church doctrine. Why is that? Uh, it's pivotal to the church. Okay. The church sees its identity in terms of its doctrine and in terms of defending and propagating the faith. Would it be accurate to say there's no... There's, uh, it's difficult to parse out any political or empire moves apart from the doctrinal moves, or that'd be too close of a confusion. Can you, what do you mean? In other words, uh, seeing what the 
the council say and do, that is a study of what's happening in the empire right. as far as power. You, you can't understand the Roman Empire in its later phases apart from the rise of Christianity. Mm. Doctrine be, will become so intertwined with the state that it almost beca- there almost becomes a confusion, especially in the medieval period, where we look at there's going to be a conf- uh, um, an intermingling of church and state, yeah. uh, where it's going to lead to some really uh, nasty things, particularly by the high Middle Ages, the late Middle Ages. Uh, but that being said, you know, w- the point is we don't want to think of doctrine in the abstract. Yeah, there are going to be riots that break out in the city of Alexandria over. Mm terminology over the nature of Christ wow. and the relationship of the divine to human natures. Um, Athanasius himself will be brought up on charges uh, for allegedly cutting off the hands of another bishop and performing necromancy. Um, it's really, yeah, no, it's, it's pretty funny because Athanasius says, okay, I'll show up to court. And he shows up with a guy and he doesn't name the guy. And when he comes forth, he goes, oh, by the way, here's the guy who said I've cut off his hands. Show him your hands, Bob. You know, the guy's name's not Bob. I can't remember the guy's name, but the guy goes, Hey, here are my hands. You know, ta da, here's the magic right. trick. I apparently have not killed him, nor right. have I performed necromancy. Anyways. That's where What About Bob? That's that movie. Yeah, it's, basically... yeah, it's actually starring Bill Murray. <laughs> um, anyway, anyways, so it was 381 to 431. Uh, we see other disputes taking place. And I, I really see this as the, the age of Augustine because the three major disputes that take place in, in this time period is the question of what's the relationship between the church and the state, which yeah. Augustine addresses in City of God. Uh, what's the role of human effort and salvation? That's Augustine's dispute with Pelagius. Yep. And then um, what do you do with lapsed Christians who, you know, let's say deny the faith during the, the period of church persecution, and now they want reentry into the church? Well, uh, that's going to be Augustine's dispute with a group of people known as the Donatists, who mm. don't want them to reenter the church. Mm. Um, and so, I mean, this really, Augustine is such a key figure in the late 4th and early 5th century that we're going to have to spend probably three or four weeks talking about Augustine. He's debating so many heresies. Yeah. yeah, I mean, he's like the war field of the 4th and 5th century. I wow. mean, he's the guy, he's just kind of, you know, talking about these people, you know, talking, uh, dealing with so many different issues. Mm. He's such a central figure. We'll, we'll spend several weeks talking about him. Um, by the time we make it to 431, the big dispute kind of shifts from a Trinitarian focus to a Christological focus. Mm-hmm. Nobody's ever uh, really denied the deity of the Father. That never comes into, into play. But, you know, Arianism, you know, deals with a rejection of the deity of the Son. Council of Nicaea in 325 uh, affirms the deity of the Son. 381, there's an affirmation of the deity of the spirit, spirit over and against a group of people known as the Pneumaticoi or the Macedonians. And that's Council of Constantine? Uh, Constantinople. Constantinople. 381, okay. right. Well, what you see now, if, if those are dealing, you know— Then you have Ephesus after that. Yeah, right. and that's that's at Council of Ephesus in 431. If the other—if the Council of Nicaea and Constantinople affirm, you know, these Trinitarian formulas, what we really see at Ephesus in 431 and Chalcedon— uh, in 451 is uh, an affirmation of Christological orthodoxy. Mm. And the question is, what's the re- if Jesus is God, what's his relationship to his humanity? And what we're going to see at 431 and 451, uh, they're really going to see uh, th- these two as, as working together, these two councils, is the fact, the affirmation that Jesus is fully man and fully God. And that in the personal, what we'd say, the hypostatic union of Christ, in the in the one personal union of Christ, the two natures exist without confusion, change, division, or separation. Yeah. And now, is there what's that uh, Chalcedon? Chalcedon that's not at Ephesus. Yeah. Um, 
it's it's a, in many ways it's a reaffirmation of what had taken place at Ephesus. I also believe I think Pelagius is condemned at Ephesus. Yeah. Um, okay. Chalcedon, you see the the application of uh, uh, a definition. It's known as the Chalcedonian definition, or you know, the definition of Chalcedon. That you know, kind of it, it, what it is is. Uh, React, you know, reacting against two particular heresies. Council of Ephesus is reacting against a heresy known as Nestorianism yes. that wants to make such a division between the human and divine natures of Christ that Jesus is talked about almost as two different people. Like schizophrenia. Almost. Yeah, yeah, schizophrenic. Two natures, two people. Right, two natures, two people, right. Um, well, what you see happen between 431 and 451 is there's an individual by, by the name of Eutyches who so radically opposed Nestorius that... He claimed that rather than there being a complete division of the two natures of Christ, he claims that the two natures are so fused together they mix like wine and water. Right. So they form a third, uh, a third thing, yeah, a third nature. Point. And so what the yeah. So what the Council of Chalcedon does is while rejecting Nestorianism, it's also going to end up rejecting Eutychianism and mm. creating a Christological definition that rejects these two extremes. Yeah. Um, and, and of course, that's going to sound kind of confusing right now. We're going to spend a couple weeks talking about uh, the implications of why they're talking about that. Why is this terminology important? How is that going to relate to pastoral ministry, to biblical counseling? You know, how is this going to be relevant for a high schooler? We're going to talk about that. But needless to say, these are the debates taking place at the time, and it's going to be pastors writing against these heresies, saying that. If you affirm Eutychianism, it's going to undermine the Christian faith. So mm. the question is in the coming weeks, how does that undermine the Christian faith? Not just in terms of you know, this intellectual cognizance, but also right. in terms of you know, practical living. Yeah, not necessarily what camp are you in. Are you for or against, but actually, practically, if you go along with this doctrine, this is what will happen. Yeah, there will be a shipwreck of your faith. Mm. And so, so we're at the end of the 5th century mm-hmm. as far as roadmaps. Mm-hmm. Anymore? No, really. We're going to stop around four. We'll stop. We'll talk about a couple other things going on after four fifty one in terms of um, uh, approaches to pastoral ministry. We'll see a, a couple key texts being written and, and some social stuff. You know, uh, the, the rise of the so called holy men in, in Eastern Syria. They're, they're kind of weird. These guys standing on poles. Just fun stuff to talk about. Yeah. Um, but you know, we're roughly going to stop around the year five hundred. There's not an, an actual date where you go, you know, people aren't sitting around going, I can't wait for the Middle Ages to happen. You know, <laughs> come on you, the year five oh one. Right. So, you know, this is kind of a when we deal with periodizing history, it's almost an anachronism. But I think I, I would say it's a useful anachronism that we're opposing on the past to make sense of key themes and events. So that's how we should approach these six particular dates. Again, the year seventy, three thirteen, three twenty five, three eighty one. 431 and 451. You learn those dates. And again, it, it it might seem confusing now, but we're going to spend several weeks looking at these issues and how you get from 70 to 313 or from 313 to 325 and so on and so forth. You know, so it might seem daunting now, but as, you know, as we spend 30 weeks working our way up to the year 500, mm. by the end of 30 weeks, these little 20, 25 minute segment talks, hopefully you'll have a, a better understanding. We're going to, you know, introduce you to, to, Useful works that'll help you if you're interested in studying church history. We'll spend a week talking about, hey, what's what you know? What are some good things to read? Yeah, um, guys who are much smarter than us who can kind of lay it out more, <laughs> more clearly and w- without as many, you know, ho- you know, no offense to any football coaches we've offended this week. Uh, yeah. 
Well, that sounds great. And uh, that's our second episode of Faith of Our Fathers. Uh, once again, I'm Jonathan Brack. I'm Charles Williams. And thanks for listening to Faith of Our Fathers.